How's everybody doing? Yeah, all right. A little energy, 1115. Y'all are a mellow crew sometimes, um, but that's, that's a little bit more. Usually I have to chastise you and say, yeah, give yourself a little more credit, you know? You're doing good. How about, uh, you know, I was just thinking about this. I've been kind of having this conversation all morning. Um, one, I'm very glad to be in this freezing cold building. Um, I know that many of you for many years have complained about how cold it is at OCC and have worn sweaters here in July, but now you're glad, aren't you? Because it's hot outside, and when you come in here, you feel good, you know? You're cold because you're old, right, Darren? I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Look at it. I get after him all the time. It's so funny. Um, man, I, I tell you what, it's uh, I, I, this, this, I, something you would say if you were at a party with somebody and you didn't have anything to say is like, man, I can't believe time flies. It's August. But I really can't believe that it's August. Like it is crazy that, you know, it's back to school time. I know some of our students are not happy about that. My son goes to school tomorrow. Um, and some of the parents here are having a little mini party without letting their kids know uh, that they're going back to school. But it's August. But I am excited that it is football season. It is, yes, I know. Go Jags, a little bit of Duval. Although Trevor did throw a pick in the second play of the game. I mean, come on. Let's be honest. We're all about transparency here at OCC. And we got to just talk about it for a second. Um, but it was funny, you know, this, it's, you grow up in the Southeast, you're going to watch football year round. And on uh, Friday night, Dan, who was just hosting, we were sitting around, we were watching a football game. We were watching the Iron Bowl from 2013. Um, and our wives were a little bit irritated. They were like, what are you doing? Like it's, we've got a couple more days and then we're going to be watching football nonstop. And you're watching games from years ago, like 10 years ago. We're like, but it's the Iron Bowl from 2013. And for some of you, maybe our 1115 crew doesn't, doesn't know this because the nine o'clock people are the people that end up going to Jags games in the afternoon. Um, but the, uh, I know, that's right. You're the, you are the people that really love Jesus because you don't care about the Jags. And you're like, I'll roll into the 1115 because they need people here because nine's got too many people in it. Um, but for the people that, that uh, are into football, 2013 uh, Iron Bowl, that's, Alabama and Auburn, by the way, for those of you that are from somewhere other than the Southeast, um, they played each other and it's one of the most famous plays of all time, right? And we're trying to tell our wives like, hey, don't like, th th we, we got to watch this. And they're like, you've watched it before. But what's, does anybody know what the play is called that happens in that game? Anybody? Kick six. Y'all actually did that better than nine. Nine was sat around for a while and Dan had to help him out and go, kick six, y'all. Y'all are lame. Um, the kick six game with Chris. Anybody know his last name? See trivia. Davis. Somebody got there. You were in the first gathering, Eric. Shut up. What are you doing? I tell you what. Dating my daughter. It's unbelievable. Just kidding. <laughs> so we're sitting there and they're just like, oh, please, come on. Let's do this. Let's do this. Now, I do have to thank ESPN for... Uh, you know, over the last 15 years coming up with things like 30 for 30 because my wife will sit down and watch that all day long. I did say something in, at the nine that she didn't appreciate, which I said, it's, you know, 30 for 30 is like getting to watch sports with your wife and she'll watch it because it's like they dropped a little bit of The Bachelorette in it. Um, and I don't know if that was the right thing to say um, because women do watch sports. Like there's a lot of women that were tapping me on the shoulder going, I watch sports more than my husband. I'm crazier. I paint my face at the Jags games. I mean, look at Laura Carmichael. For, for goodness sake. I mean, you talk about women that love sports. She will shame you on statistics on the Jaguars. That's right. That's right. You're right there. She's like, I'm right here. I'll tell you that's true. Um, but uh, the, this 30 for 30 is amazing because it adds narrative to the story. SEC storied, which we stole, um, is, is this idea that's like all of a sudden you get got these amazing sports stories. You've got these amazing individuals. You've got this stuff where you've got, you can learn. Like my wife loves sitting down to watch a football game when she knows that the quarterback, how he grew up. Oh, he grew up in this tough situation and then his girlfriend is pretty and she's sitting over there and it's awesome. She can watch it and she gets into it. Um, well, the storied series and on ESPN, is very much like that. And 30 for 30 has got all of the narratives woven in. And what's amazing about that, even guys, you don't want to admit it, but that makes it better when we know the, the narratives, when we know the story, because God wired into you in our human connection that we want to know each other's story. We want to know the narrative. We want to know the backstory. We want to know the ups, the downs. We want to know how people navigate the pain in life, the trauma in life, the successes, the victories. When we watch movies like Rudy, 
We, we love that trajectory. We love, it, it would, Rudy wouldn't be Rudy without the pain that he went through to end up playing for Notre Dame. When you watch Shawshank Redemption, I mean, if the dude hadn't gone to prison, it wouldn't be a movie, right? I mean, that's what makes it a redemptive story. And in our storied series and in scripture, what I love is the Bible is so much more than just a history book. It's a series of narratives that God, by the power of his spirit, this God-breathed text, he put in there for our benefit and for his glory, that we would learn, that we would understand his nature, that we would understand how much he loves us, how much he is here to pursue us, but also how sovereign he is, that his providential will is at work in every second, in every minute of every day, and that we could put our faith in it. And in this series, we want to look at these stories. We want to take these narratives out. Usually we're going exegetically through a book of the Bible, but we're going to pull out some of these legends. And that's what that word, somebody said, storied isn't a word. I was like, it is a literary word. If you didn't know, it's a literary word. Like the way that it would be used in a sentence is that island has a storied past or that mobster has a storied past. And so there's so many epic, legendary stories in scripture that don't point to the individual, but they actually are the ones that reflect the creator and the one that created everything and the author of this redemptive story that leads to one story, leads to one individual, the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what's incredible about the Bible that we read. It's what's incredible about these individual narratives in scripture is they're all lesser and shadows of the eventual reality of the cross of Jesus Christ and the, and the possibility that you and I, not of our own work, not of our own doing, can come back into a relationship with the God that created us, who you were created by and for. So we're gonna dig in today to the story of Joseph, one of the most epic stories in scripture. In fact, Moses, who wrote Genesis, where the story of Joseph resides, spends more time and gives Joseph more playtime than any other character in the book of Genesis. And that's saying a lot because you've got Adam and Eve, for goodness sake. You've got Noah. I mean, there's been movies made about Noah. Not good ones, but there's been movies made about Noah. And you, I mean, you keep on going down the line. You've got Abraham. I mean, Joseph's got more, more time than Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even his father. So we, we end up in this story and just to even see a little bit of the background we get into this, into this story straight from, you've got Abraham, Isaac, you've got Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. One of his sons is Joseph. And Joseph is um, known as the favorite one. And if any of it, it's like your, your felt board Bible stories. I mean, why, what, what lets us know that Joseph was uh, Jacob's favorite son? Anybody? The coat of many colors, yes. And as Marie Osmond would say and Donnie Osmond, the technicolor dream coat. Yes, thank you very much. That's, what we, that's how we know that he was a favorite. So I wanna do something a little different. Instead of starting right there in that section of the story, I wanna to jump to kind of Joseph's rise and I'm gonna give the, the end of the story away. Joseph ends up second in command of all of Egypt, which was the most powerful nation on planet Earth. It was around the 1850s BC. I mean, it was 4,000 years ago. I mean, this is a crazy, crazy that we have such a story that you and I can relate to that is so ancient, that is so far from us in a place, in a, in a time in the world that um, it's hard for us to even understand. But then you get into the story and you realize that people don't change. But Joseph is second command in the most powerful nation on planet earth. That's where he ends up. But before that, in the middle of his rise, he's in one of the high official's house. His name is Potiphar. So in, in verse six, in chapter 39, it says, so Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except for food. So I, wanna, I just wanna back up just for a second and See, how in the world did Joseph get in that position? How did he end up in that place? Well, if you look at verse two, it says, when, when Joseph was in the house of Potiphar, he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. And when his master saw that the Lord was with him, and this is kind of the clue as to how he ended up there, 
When he saw that the, 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 the Lord was with him, the Lord gave him what? Success in everything he did. Joseph found favor in the eyes of his attendant, Potiphar, who put him in charge of the household. And he entrusted him um, to his care, everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. So Potiphar, um, which I always, it, it just immediately when I say that, I think about when I was in Sunday school, the Sunday school teacher came up with a pot, had a stuffed animal jam, jammed in it and said, if you want to remember this name, she would hold up the pot of fur. You're welcome. And you can use that with your children as well. So Potiphar put him in charge of the whole household and trusted his care to everything he owned. And as he was there, he was blessed. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. And Joseph, while he was in charge, in, in Joseph's charge. And Potiphar did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. I mean, Joseph was so good at what he did that all Potiphar was worried about is where he's going to dinner. Is he going to Flying Iguana? Is he going to V Pizza? Where are we going tonight, baby? I don't know. We're going to watch a movie. We don't have to worry about it. Joseph's got things on lockdown. That's the way that Joseph operated. And Joseph had climbed this ladder of success in the household of this high official in the Egyptian empire. But let's go back. Verse 39, two says, the Lord was with Joseph and he prospered. I mean, isn't that what we all want at the end of the day? I mean, I know that we've talked a lot about the prosperity gospel and the idea that you coming to know Jesus is not necessarily gonna be rainbows and lollipops. Oh, now that I know Jesus, everything's just gonna be fantastic. No, no bad things are gonna happen. I mean, I think a lot of us have a sense of that in the room. That that's not, I mean, if we, if we made that statement in here, you would walk out of these doors and very quickly that theology would fall apart because it's not true. But innately, we do want to prosper. We do want our lives to matter. We want to be close to God. We want to be, we want things to be said of us like they're said of Joseph. I mean, they're right here in scripture that the Lord was with Joseph and he prospered. Who doesn't want that? He was successful at the things that he did. I mean, all of us want our life to matter. We don't want to live this, this short life and have it not mean anything. He was promoted constantly. I think all of us don't want to stay where we are. We want to move forward. He was trusted with important things. We want people around us to not think, okay, I can't give him anything because he's an idiot. We want people to believe in us, believe that we're valuable. And then others were blessed because of him. I mean, I think all of us would hope that the people that were around um, enjoy being around us and their lives are better enriched because of their relationship with us. I mean, all those things, I think we would hope we would want those things. So what's the, what's the secret of his success? How, why was Joseph the person that he was? Well, there's a clue kind of woven into chapter 39 multiple times. All through the, the phases of this story, it says, the Lord was with Joseph. But it's more about the trajectory of the story of Joseph that I'm interested in. So let's, let's rewind a little bit and see where some of the success comes from because I think a lot of us want our lives to matter. We want to prosper, but I don't know that you would want to trade places with Joseph in any stretch of the imagination. So in Genesis chapter 37, if we, if we go back there, I'll kind of give you the, the paraphrase. Joseph, again, he's, he's one of 12 brothers and sisters. Jacob's got 12 in there from different I mean, there's different mamas, different baby mamas. I mean, it's just kind of the way things rolled in Genesis. We're not even going to get into that today. But you've got the story of Rachel and Leah that happens right before this is, is crazy. So Joseph was, uh, his mom was, was Rachel and he had a brother, Benjamin. The rest of these guys are his half brothers, some from maidservants and some from Leah. And so that's kind of how he ended up being the favorite because Jacob, his dad, really, really loved Rachel and didn't really expect to be married to Leah. Again, that's a whole nother story and a crazy one. Uh, that's why you got to read the Bible. Unbelievable narrative. I mean, if you, yeah. So you've got this, this family, really large homeschool family. Um, I'm kidding. I'm joking. I know we got homeschoolers here and I'm saying that for your benefit. Um, but we've got this big family and Joseph is the favorite. And Joseph's 17 years old, he's good looking, he's strapping, um, and he, he, I don't know that he, it doesn't say this in scripture that he's really proud, but in my mind, I'm thinking this is a, what a 17 year old would do. He was given dreams. 
And he would just tell his family what the dreams are without thinking about the consequences of that. So he had a dream. He's like, I just had this dream that we all kind of had our own like sheave of wheat. And all, hey, all my, all my brothers, they had their sheaves of wheat and all their sheaves of wheat were bowing down to mine. <laughs> Don't y'all love that story? It's fantastic. Yeah, his brothers didn't like it. And then he told another one, he said, hey, I had this dream that, that I was standing in front of a sun, a moon, and 11 stars. I'm thinking, maybe that's you guys. I don't know. And all of them were bowing down to me. Isn't that a great story? So I don't know that he was super smart when he was 17 because his brothers hated him. They did not like him at all. In fact, one day his dad was, the, the, they were out working, um, and his dad said, hey, your brothers are in Shechem, and you need to go get them. And He's like, okay, I'll, I'll head out there. I don't know, probably because he was a favorite. He, you know, you know, wasn't out there working. He was just sitting back in his coat of many colors. Tells him to go get him. He goes to Shechem um, and a guy there says, hey, they're no longer here. They're, they're tending a flock in Dothan. I mean, I know Alabama is probably a long way from Canaan, um, but yeah, they were in Dothan, sorry. You know, nine was a lot, laughed a lot harder at that one. Um, and I, you know what? I applaud you for not letting me get away with that. That's really good of you. Um, so there, he goes to Dothan and before he even is seen by his brothers um, or b- before he sees his brothers, they see him and they, uh, Judah and the rest of them are, are standing around. They're like, here comes that dreamer. Here he comes. Why don't we kill him? I mean, it has been brewing for 10 or 15 years, this whole favoritism thing. So they're at, at the point of murder. You can imagine they are, they really, really hate Joseph. So there's, there's definitely more to this story than just the coat of many colors. There's some jealousy, but there's other stuff that had to have kind of been woven into the, the fabric of the family dynamic to have this much brokenness where they're like, let's murder him. So they start hatching a plan right then. Now you get the sense if you're reading it, Reuben's talking to him and it's like the guy that's the, the, the older brother that's like, hey, y'all are talking about murder, y'all. Maybe we should pipe down. I mean, this will kill our father if we, we take him out. I mean, just starts to, he's, he doesn't want to do it, but they're like, yeah, we're going to kill him. So they throw him in the cistern in this pit. It's an unused well or a well that's dried up and they start talking about it. And finally, Reuben convinces them and Judah, who's like kind of the, the leader guy in the, in the family says, okay, what we're going to do is we've got Midianites and Ishmaelites always come by here and they're headed to Egypt and they always need slaves. We'll just sell them into slavery. And that's exactly what they did. They ended up selling him into slavery. And it says right there at the end of 37, it says, meanwhile, the Midianites, um, meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph after he was sold to the Midianites to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. So that's how he ends up in this place where he ends up in charge of Potiphar's household. So not a very good beginning to the story. In verse six, it says, so Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care with Joseph in charge and did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. So that's where we, where we ended. And it sounds like, okay, he's climbed the corporate ladder. He's had all these good things that have happened. He's had all this success. I would love to have that success. But in this story, it doesn't stop right there. The next statement in verse six is, now Joseph was well-built and handsome. Now I'm setting that up because when, when that enters into the story, you know something's gonna go south. Like they don't just throw, now Joseph was well-built and handsome and just leave it right there. This is the, the moment where the narrative of the story really does go south. Like I, I'm not, I can't even, because the story's pretty graphic at, at, at some parts, but Joseph's well-built and handsome and Potiphar's wife, Potiphar's a traveling fella and he goes out of town and leaves the wife at home. And the wife, I don't know if she's bored or what's going on. She's got everything she's ever wanted. Um, but there's this guy, he's young, you know, around 20 years old. Um, and he's well-built and handsome, according to the Bible. And she just makes a pass at him and then makes another pass at him and continues. And Joseph, because he's a man of God and says, because I'm faithful to God and because I am loyal to your husband, I will not. I've been given everything in this household except for you. And I will not engage in this affair. And over and over and over again, until she literally throws herself at him, grabs his cloak. And I love this because it plays like a cartoon. He runs and leaves his cloak behind. Like it's just immediately just gets out of the coat and he's gone and he's outside and she's left with the cloak. 
But that's how he ends up getting accused of sexual harassment because she keeps the cloak, goes around to all the servants and says, he came into my bedroom and tried to sexually harass me, tried to be inappropriate with me. Look what he has done. And then Potiphar comes home, tells the whole story to her husband. And he's so angry that he throws Joseph in prison. Unbelievable. But if you look at chapter 39, the end of verse 20 and into 21, it says, but while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. Kind of a theme here. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison. So he ends up at the top of the food chain in prison, which nobody really wants, but if you're gonna be in prison, it's a good place to be. And he was made responsible for all that was done there. And again, it makes the statement that the warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Now, the, 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 the side note in the side sermon here is one of the things that you see and you notice about Joseph's story is one, he's not a guy that kicks the can because of a situation. The dude's been thrown in a pit. He was part of conspiracy to be murdered. His brothers abandoned him, wanted to murder him in the first place, which really doesn't do good things for you mentally or physically being thrown into a pit, sold to the Midianites and then sold into to slavery to Potiphar. And now he's been falsely accused for sexual harassment and thrown into prison. And each time, what does he do? He makes the best of a really horrible situation because he believes and knows. He goes, God is with me and God gives him favor, extends him kindness. And at the end of the day, everybody that's around Joseph goes, this dude is awesome. He's great at what he does and people just wanna be around him and their lives are better because he's around. And you know what Joseph doesn't do? Joseph doesn't let it all land on him. What they know, what Potiphar knows and what the warden knows is that they're like, it's because God's with him. Each time it makes, it's clear in scripture that, that the warden knew that the Lord was with Joseph and the Lord was blessing Joseph. And as a result of the Lord blessing Joseph, the warden was blessed. Joseph was shining a big, bright, beautiful light, not on himself in the midst of climbing whatever ladder he was climbing in each of these horrible situations, but he was shining it on God. Now, while Joseph was in prison, something interesting happens as we continue in this story. I mean, this, this one could go, I mean, we could, we could have preached this for three weeks, easy, but instead we're just gonna go for three hours today. Um, so as soon as we roll into Genesis chapter 40, two guys come rolling into the prison. Um, I mean, this plays like a movie. I mean, there's, there's been bad movies, Bible movies made. This, I mean, there's, this would be a good one, is the story of Joseph. You've got the, the cupbearer and the baker from the palace come rolling into the prison. Um, and Pharaoh had gotten angry about something that they didn't take care of or something they didn't do. So they end up in prison and they run into Joseph and they're both kind of, it says, downcast. And Joseph says, why are you downcast? And they said, well, we had dreams and we don't have anybody to interpret our dreams. We don't know what they mean. They seem like they, they're meaningful. And Joseph's like, and what Joseph doesn't do is say, I can interpret dreams. He doesn't. He says, I know that God can interpret those dreams. If God wants to reveal what those dreams are about, he will. And God does. He reveals to Joseph what those dreams are about. And he tells the cupbearer and the baker. He goes to the cupbearer and says, hey, your dream, this, this weird dream about grapes and about these vines, that's, that's you in the, those, those three buckets of grapes or whatever. Those are the three days. In three days, you're gonna be restored to your position as the cupbearer. That is good news for you. And the baker goes, that's great. He's got good news in his dream. I'm hoping mine's the same. Mine's kind of, I've got these three baskets of bread. One's actually on my head. And birds are like eating the bread out of the basket on my head. Maybe I'm getting and restored to my deal too. Joseph says, nope, in three days, your head's gonna be on a pike and there's gonna be birds eating at your scalp. That's what's gonna happen to you. You're gonna be killed. Yeah, you're welcome. I know, you're not gonna get over that. Um, but we've got the cupbearer going back to the, so Joseph's really good at interpreting dreams, but he tells the cupbearer, he says, hey, you're going back to the palace. Please, please, please don't forget me. You got, you, you got people, you're gonna have connections. You, you have a direct line to the Pharaoh because the cupbearer was trusted in the palace. He's like, please don't leave me behind. And it literally says in the next verse, it says, and the cupbearer forgot 
Joseph for two more years, two more years in prison. Can you imagine? I mean, you can go just look up what happens psychologically and physically to any human being that goes to prison, even just for one year. Like you, just the, the, the change in a human being that it creates to go to prison. It is a, I mean, it is, it's not that there's, there's no redemption on the other side of going to jail or being in prison. We've had people in this church that have been in prison for many, many years. And on the other side of that, God's done incredible things in their life. But it can, it can destroy you. And he goes back, gets forgotten. And he's there for two more years. And then Pharaoh has a dream. So the most powerful man Politically, in, in, a, in a monarchy at the time, it's in the 12th dynasty of Egypt, this is the time of the pyramids, is the Pharaoh. He has a dream. And the cupbearer is very close to him, hears about his dream. He can't, nobody in the, in the palace guard or anybody, any of their magicians or people there can interpret it. So the cupbearer hears about it and he says, I know a guy. I don't know why I said it in an Italian voice, but it seemed like the right thing to do. He says, I know a guy, he's in prison. And he probably felt bad in, in, the, in the moments. Like I've been to, because he had been to prison, you know, I've been to prison, I know a guy. Um, so he knows a guy and he says, hey, I know a guy. He, he interpreted my dream, he interpreted the baker's dream. And he, he said, in three days, you're gonna execute the baker and I'm gonna be restored to my position. Everything happened just as it did. So Ferris says, well, what are we doing? Let's go get the, get the guy. So they get Joseph. Joseph comes, they say, we hear you can interpret dreams. And Joseph again says, I cannot interpret dreams. God can if God wants to, if God wills, he can interpret your dream. And he does. He does it through Joseph. And the dream was that there's going to be, he said, he, he said at first I had a dream there was, there was seven sheaves of, of good wheat. They were beautiful and wonderful and great. And then there was seven sheaves of awful wheat that was, was not good and, and, not, and not in good shape. And then he said, I had another dream where there was like these beautiful, wonderful Chick-fil-A cows and they looked very healthy. And then there was these like weird, ugly Ob- o- o- Ebola cows over here. And there was seven of these and seven of these. I don't know what that means. And Joseph tells him, he says, it means that you're, Egypt's gonna have seven years of plenty. They're gonna have seven years of the most wonderful agriculture and wonderful business and prosperity that it's ever had, followed by the worst seven years on planet earth. Like not just for Egypt, but for the surrounding areas and across the globe, there's gonna be a famine that will bring the world to its knees. And Pharaoh says, what what should we do? We don't even know what to do. We gotta put somebody in charge. We've got these seven years of plenty. How do we prepare for this? What do we, and he starts looking around the palace guard, looking around to find out who he should put in charge. And then all of a sudden he's like, the guy that interpreted the dreams is pretty smart. We'll put him in charge. And he goes to Joseph and says, I'm putting you in charge of everything. Nobody will be over you except for me, which means he would be in second in command in the most powerful nation on planet. My man has gone from hated by his brothers, thrown into a pit, abandoned, sold into slavery, falsely accused of sexual harassment, put in prison, forgotten in prison, all the way to second in command to the most powerful nation on planet earth. From the pit to the prison to the palace. Crazy, unbelievable story that we find in scripture. And when he finds himself there for seven years, he collects uh, a fifth of all of the prosperity that they have in those seven years. And then, of course, just as he interpreted that dream, the seven years of famine hit. And in two, two years into that famine, you go back to Canaan and what, what's happening there? Well, you've got the, his 11 brothers and their dad, Jacob. And Jacob finds out through the grapevine that they've got grain in Egypt. They've got prosperity in Egypt that they saved. And he's like, well, we've got money. They were, Jacob had a, a wealthy family. He says, we've got money. And he literally says to his sons, he says, why are y'all looking at each other? Get on your camel and go to Egypt. Well, he didn't say the camel part, but he did say, why are you looking at each other? Go to Egypt. I'll give you money and you go get the grain. So they go to Egypt and guess who they have to go to in order to purchase grain to bring back home to Canaan? Joseph, their brother. And the, the trajectory of what happens at this point is fascinating. It spans about five chapters in Genesis. 
because you've got a brokenhearted brother who's now 38, 39 years old based on what we can do in math. I mean, he was, this whole first part of his trajectory is about 13 years. Once he got out of prison, it's like 13 years to get to where he was in the palace. And now we've been about 22 years. 22 years, he was 17, now he's almost 40. So his brothers don't recognize him. He's in all his Egyptian gear and his garb and he's checking, you know, he sees them come. He's emotionally torn. And he doesn't immediately go, I'm Joseph and kill them all, which you think that that might be what he does. He pauses and there's this kind of almost this slow dance to revealing who he is to his brothers. He even has an interpreter, even though he, he can understand Hebrew, he has an interpreter speak Egyptian to the Hebrews so that his brothers have no idea who he is. Like he keeps his identity revealed. And it's this emotional engagement that goes back and forth, back and forth until finally you get to this place in Genesis chapter 50, which is one of the most utilized and leveraged pieces of scripture that you'll find because it speaks to the the providence and the sovereignty of God and the story of Joseph. And if we're wondering why God, like we, we see things that break down in our own lives in the when we zoom in to the, the minute by minute of our own lives, we wonder why God's doing what he's doing in the middle of our story, why we're in a particular pit, why we're in bondage. But Joseph would say to you and me in Genesis 50, chapter 20, when he's speaking to his brothers, and this is near the end of this story, he says, you intended to harm me, speaking of his brothers, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Joseph, at this mature point in his life, understands and knows that the trajectory of the pit, the prison, and the palace was all God's sovereignty. It was God's working, working the enemy's brokenness that he wanted to push into the corner of the people of God for good. The enemy, what the enemy intended for evil, what, what the brothers intended for evil, God can even take what we intend for evil, what, what evil men intend, He'll take that stack together. He'll weave it together for the saving of lives. So as we look at this story, I want to zoom into a few other, I paraphrase this whole story. There's so much to it, but I want to make a couple of points as we dig in here. One, right at the very beginning, is that people don't hold your dreams. God does. People don't hold your dreams. God does. We see that at the very beginning of the story. The brothers Say, here comes that dreamer, they said to each other when he was walking to them and he was coming into Dothan. He says, come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. And then we'll see, then we'll see what comes of his dreams. And we know the end of the story, what happens. I mean, they're looking at Joseph, they're going, hey, guess what? He's, he's, nobody's gonna be bowing down to Joseph, especially us dreamer. He's got his thing that he, that he wants. We often look at people in our circumstances and we think they're the, they're the reason that our dreams are, are crushed. We, we, have, we have our own idea of what's, why the things are happening that are happening in our lives. Like, why is this happening? And maybe it's, it's a parent that's crushed your dream or in your own mind has just absolutely dismantled the way that you think And many of you have those situations. You grew up with abuse. You grew up with abandonment. And you give all the credit for everything being robbed from you to those people. We even think we own our own dreams. It's interesting when you look at this, if we see what happens eventually, we see in verse 45, it says now Joseph, or chapter 45, it says now Joseph was governor Remember, only the Pharaoh ranked higher of the land and the person who sold the grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, what did they do? They bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. So we see how the the story ends. 22 years later, sun, the moon, and the 11 stars, they all come to Egypt and they bow down before Joseph. See, God's plan is bigger than your pit. I don't care where you are, what's going on. God's providential plan 
And, and not because he's mean and he's this ruler that's putting all the chess pieces together so that he can accomplish some will that you're not a part of. It is for your good and for his glory. Everything that he's doing, everything that you're walking through, and that's hard for me to say because I know some of you are, have walked through the valley of the shadow of death in the worst way. Some of you have walked through cancer and I know, I know who you are. I know some of you that have recently just walked through divorce. And, and you're looking at the person that divorced you, the spouse that divorced you and thinking, you've stolen my dreams of a family. You've stolen my dreams of, of the American dream of the, of the fence and the, and, the, and the cars and the house and this growing old together and grandchildren. You've, you've robbed me of it. And I just want, I want you to know that God sees you and he knows exactly where you are. He knows exactly where you are. And I'm not saying that it's easy. I'm just telling you that this is not the end of the story. You know, several years ago, I was in a Bible study with a group of guys. Um, and it's amazing where, where all these guys are today. I'd love to, 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 to tell that story. But it was kind of the first, my first fight club. We didn't call it a fight club, but it was the guys I kind of leaned on. And we, we awkwardly got together over years. Like when we first got together and started doing a Bible study, it was like, you know, we, you know, you didn't know what to share and guys are weird. You know, it's like, oh yeah, are you having a hard time? Yeah, so me too. Let's talk about sports. Um, and then eventually we got into it with each other, right? And so we would, we would, we would pray for one another. We would read books together um, and we'd open the Bible together and we would eat pizza together. Um, and we have lunch every, every Wednesday. And I remember it was that season of life. We're all just trying to make it, man. We're just like trying to, trying to figure out, a, you know, feed our families uh, and, and do things. And I, I was saying in the, in, in, in the nine, Dan and I at different times were so down on our luck. We had to like, I remember Dan having to buy me groceries. Like, cause we, our family, we needed food. Like I didn't say, Dan, will you please go buy me groceries? He would just show up like, dude, I know y'all need groceries. Um, and there was, there was a season in life when when I remember bringing groceries to you guys. I mean, it was just one of those, that, that, this, those seasons. So we would talk about, complain about our situation in life, whatever pit we were in. And Dan was working for the University of Phoenix in a call center of all places, doing, you know, whatever. And do on the phone. And his boss would always come by and he would tell, he would come. Dan's one of the funniest people. He should work for Saturday Night Live. Uh, you don't even get that side of Dan. He's amazing. But he was telling the story about his boss always coming by going, Dan, you know, we just, you know, I don't know what it is that you do, but we need more of this right here. We just need more of this right here. A couple more of these a day and you won't get fired. And Dan would come to our meeting. He's like, I just can't, I can't do it. You know, it's like, you know, just the office, but terrible. Um, And we, I don't know what happened. We, we just, we would pray about stuff like that. Like, you know, let's pray about, you know, that Dan gets out of the QB, you know, let's, let's, let's make sure something good happens for him. Um, but we did, we prayed for Dan and prayed for each other. And I don't know what happened in that season, but um, God just, you know, kind of inspired Dan. We had gone to a leadership conference at, at some point um, and he just thought, man, I, I, there's, there's definitely things I can do. And went into the office and, and applied for a job that he wasn't qualified for, that he didn't have the prerequisites for, but he thought, you know what, I'm going to see if they'll allow me to interview. I don't even remember how they allowed you to interview for the job. But he goes and he interviews for the job, uh, comes out, and I'll just say this. He would never say this in his testimony. He crushed the interview. Like he, he had to have based on the end of the story. So he comes out of the interview and his boss, who had the lady, I guess, that runs the call center, this lady, hey, Dan, we need more of this. She's going in to interview for the same job. Super good. So she goes in and she's like a little bit condescending. She's, she's like, oh, she's like, what are you doing? Are you, what, are you in there? And he's like, yeah, I'm interviewing for that you know, job. She goes, oh, it's condescending. She's like, it's like so cute. So it's like, you know, you don't have the prerequisites for that job. It's, but yeah, it's good for you. Happy Dan. Um, check this out. Dan comes into our next lunch meeting like this. He's just like, we're like, what happened? What happened? He goes, I just became my boss's boss. <laughs> Woo! I mean, he literally went, here's, you know, this lady right here. He's now her boss. I mean, you talk about, it's like better than watching Shawshank Redemption. I mean, it's amazing, amazing story because God is the one that's in charge of our dreams. He is the one that holds us. He is the one that knows why we were in the call center. He's the, he's the reason that, that we're 
that we, we find ourselves in a pit, but that he is in it with us. Every moment of Joseph's life, it says God was with him and showed kindness to him and gave him favor with the people that he was around. In the worst of circumstances and in the best of circumstances, God's faithfulness did not change. Secondly, people will forget you. Absolutely, but God never does. Remember what Joseph says to the cupbearer? He says, only remember me. When it is well with you, once you get back to the palace, please do me this kindness to mention me to Pharaoh so that I get out of this place, right? Remember me. Then verse 23, yet the cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. He's forgotten for two more years. How long have you waited? How long have you waited? Everybody in here has experienced that. And there's people in this room, you're waiting for something. You're, maybe you're waiting for a relationship to come together or be put back together. Maybe you're waiting for a child. And it's a hard season. What are you waiting for? What are you looking up at the sky? Like the psalmist says in Psalm 13, how long, O oh Lord, will I wait? Where are you? I love the rawness of the Psalms. How long do I have to wait for this? I feel abandoned. You talk about a guy that felt abandoned. Joseph understood what it, it meant. I mean, imagine the Lord was with him, but he's in prison. How many times he looked up and said, sup with this, man? Why am I here? How could this possibly be? I'm following you. I go to church every Sunday. How could this possibly be? Could this really be your sovereignty? If it is, I'm, I'm a little frustrated. I was in that season of life, 2007. And I remember being at, at River City Church and I was begrudgingly at prayer ministry training, which is if you've been to Ocean City Church, we, we, we pray for one another at the end of our gatherings and we have a training. And it's not to show everybody how to be a prayer wizard and heal everybody. It's to show everybody not to be weird in church. That's what that one is. Like don't blow on people or push people down. Um, just lay a hand on them like it says in the Bible and pray for them. Um, but I'm at prayer ministry training. But at the end of it, Tom Rossi was teaching it, says, hey, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 talks about words of knowledge, words of wisdom, all these things that God can gift us. Maybe there's people in this room that have some of that gifting that can use it in prayer ministry. You could actually speak prophetically into somebody's life instead of just saying, hey, I hope your leg gets better. God, Lord, we just hope your leg gets better. But you could actually say something by the power of the Holy Spirit that changes their life. So he says, hey, let's all just do that. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to, to work and move. And we're going to be quiet because nobody's ever quiet. And you're just going to wait. And you're just going to listen to the Holy Spirit and see what God brings to your mind. I know that freaks some of you out, but biblically, it lines up. You can read your Bible. Holy Spirit, listen. See how God speaks. So everybody's sitting there. And what I didn't know at that time is my wife knew that, I mean, she's hurt. She's brokenhearted for me because I had been going through an undiagnosed neurological disorder. Didn't tell a whole ton of people about it, but I was in chronic pain a lot. I was just crazy. I'd been doctor to doctor to doctor. A lot of you know that story and still in the middle of it. And I was really frustrated and angry with God. Didn't want to be at prayer ministry training. Didn't want anybody to talk about healing. I had resigned myself that God doesn't do that stuff no more. I'm not even going to think about it, but I'm there at prayer ministry training, holding my hands out going, yeah, I know I'm trying to re receive the gift of God. But Beth's praying going, maybe in, in this moment, somebody in this room, there's 50 people in here. will have a word for Derek. God, if, you're, if we're not forgotten, me and Derek, have somebody in this room have a word for him. So at the end of the time, Tom Rossi gets back up and he says, hey, if, maybe, maybe we should just see if somebody had a, a word for this, this, this group of 50 people. Let's, let's just see how God works. I mean, it's practical prayer ministry. It was awesome. So this 18-year-old just sheepishly kind of walks up to the front of the deal like this, kind of looking around like he's got a word, almost like the Holy Spirit was shoving him up there. Like he didn't want to do it. And he's kind of standing there like this, young. And he's like, I've got a word for you. And he's, he literally is pointing directly at me. And I'm not thinking too, too much about it because I didn't know what Beth had prayed. I didn't know any, anything about that. But he's looked directly at me and says, I've got a word for you. In that instant, Beth goes, <laughs> I mean, it was awesome. So, cause she's like, oh my, 50 people in here. And it was like laser beam, bam, I got a word for you. And then the words that he spoke had, I mean, it was unbelievable. He was talking, it was right to my issue. 
And the kid didn't know. He had no idea. He, walked, he thought, I'm a, I'm a moron and walked away like this. You know, I don't know what I said. I was the one guy that was stupid enough to go up front. And God spoke through him. And everything about that moment was just, it changed my life. I mean, I don't think I'd be here standing here speaking to you if that, that was such a turning point for me to go, God has been faithful all this time and is telling me right now that everything that's happened to me, every, every bit of pain, every pit stop, every pit, every moment that I've been on my face begging for God to remove this pain from my life has been part of the trajectory that is going to launch me into serving other people, pastoring other people, loving other people. And my story of pain, my story of struggle, my story of my pit will be for other people's salvation. I will be able to speak over people and give people hope and, and point not to myself, but to other, other human beings or to, to the God that saves us. He's not, he's not forgotten us. People over and over again will forget you, but God won't forget you. Lastly, God's plan is not to make your life easier, but to make it matter. God's plan is not to make your life easier, but to make it matter. When you look at the, the end of this story, it's so sweet. Eventually, Jacob comes, his father, his little brother comes. In fact, when at the end of the story, when he's still, he's right, right before the, the revealing everything to his, to his brothers, he sees Benjamin, his his. his Full, full brother, and they bring him up. And just when he sees his face, Joseph, it's the sweetest moment. He literally has to leave the room. It says he goes to another room, takes off his Egyptian garb, and sobs so loud, like ugly cries. Just, I mean, just because his heart's just being pulled out of his chest. If you're reading this story for the first time, you're thinking there's no way he's not gonna go out and kill his brothers. If you didn't know the story, because you'd think... That type of pain, that type of abandonment, that type of brokenness. And what I love about that is that God knew that we, he's not just flippantly going, God is sovereign. It's his providential will that you should suffer. God wants, he wants you to know even in this moment that yeah, he, this is heartbreaking. It broke God's heart to, to see Joseph suffer. That's the part of God's sovereign will that we don't understand is that he weeps when we suffer. And when we're, when we're in the middle of the pit, when we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, when he's walking us through the valley of the shadow of death, he's crying with you. He's not overlording you going, this is my providential will and moving chess pieces. I mean, that's the picture of Jesus, the invisible, the, the, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation that walked on planet earth, the one that wept for Mary and Martha when Lazarus died, cried but still waited for the glory of God and allowed Lazarus to die. Do we know why? Jesus says, so that you believe and that God will be glorified. We see the story of Joseph, it's the same. It's the same in Genesis 45, verse four. We'll end here. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt listen to this. It says, and now do not be distressed. Can you imagine not saying that? Because I would want them to be shaking in their boots. He says, don't be distressed. Don't be scared. And do not be angry with yourselves. Don't be hard on yourselves. I'd be like, be hard on yourself. Threw me in a pit, sold me to a Midianite. I don't even know what a Midianite is. It's bad. Just don't be angry with yourselves for selling, selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. God's objective was not to make Joseph's life easier. It was to make it matter. It was to make it better for his good and for his glory. You know, I think about a parent. Dave said it last week. It's, it's those moments where your child doesn't understand. As a coach, it's those moments where it's like, hey, do we want easy practice or do we want better practice? We want better practice because that's better for the the team. It's better for the linebacker. It's better for the quarterback. You know what? This is going to be painful. We're going to do things in two a days that are not going to feel great. And you know what? They're not going to be over instantaneously. They're going to take a while. But on the other side of that, as Peter would say, there's, there's going to be gold to be had. We're going to shave off all the stuff that doesn't matter. And the things that really matter are going to remain. 
And I think about Joseph as a 17-year-old, probably a little bit arrogant. Sun, moon, stars, all bowing down to me. But at the end of his story, 22 years later, the humility. And now he has a reason to brag. He's second in command of the most powerful nation on the planet. But what he does is give God glory for everything in his maturity. His life wasn't easier, but it was better and it mattered. And that's possible for you. The apostle Paul would say, you know, the suffering, it's, it's light and momentary. And it's, it's building something, it's working something, it's creating something, it's providing something. This eternal weight of glory. There's something on the other side of this. And the, the miracle of this and this story is that, that God takes, he takes affliction, he takes abandonment. He stacks all these things up. The fact that he was falsely accused. Nobody wants that. Affliction. Imprisonment. He was forgotten. I mean, the lack of justice in in the story up to that point. He takes this whole stack. And you know what God does? He, He weaves this beautiful narrative. Takes all of it and turns it for good. And if you read Isaiah 53, it it reads almost the same way. He was afflicted. He was beaten. Unjustifiably rejected. His own people turned their back. Think about it. Jesus, his Hebrew brothers and sisters, just like Joseph, what did they say? Jesus is being judged right there with Pilate. And they said, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. But Jesus would say the same thing as he hung on the cross, as he would bleed out into the soil of Mount Calvary for you and me. What the enemy intended for evil, God intended for the saving of many lives. And what's on tap for everybody in this room? And this is, this is, amazing to me. This morning, I, I, uh, we were finishing a, a, our nine and a, and, a, and a woman comes up to me with real glassy eyes. And she says, you know, last week you guys said from up front, you said, there's somebody here that's come to church, been invited by somebody that doesn't want to be here, but you got drug here and you don't believe any of the stuff. You're bitter. You don't like church. You don't believe it. You don't believe in God. You're, that's not your deal, but you're here. Cause you're like, this person will not leave me alone unless I come to their stupid church. She was, you were saying all those words and I was thinking, that's me. This place is stupid. And she said, you guys said that you, you, you now feel at the end of this gathering that you, you, it's, you're, something's changed. I feel differently. I feel emotional. My, my, I, I feel like my heart's beating. I feel like I'm sweating a little bit. I feel like maybe I, maybe I believe in She said, you guys said, you should just surrender your life to Jesus right now, where you are. And she came up to me and she said, that was me. And I surrendered my life to Jesus yesterday, last week when you said that. Isn't that crazy? And that could be you. I don't know what your story is. I don't know how you got here. what's, What's going on? Maybe it's just you're in a pit and you've, it's, you're so far from, feeling. Everything's just dried up for you because of the brokenness that you've experienced. God wants to change that this morning. Your story, God can leverage even your story for somebody else's salvation. What a miracle that would be. Let's stand.